Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network. We are Phyllis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, and Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross. Our guest for this edition is Paul Loeb, and we'll be talking with him about his newest book entitled The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times, a book recently out with Basic Books. Paul is the author of Soul of a Citizen, Living with Conviction in Challenging Times, a book that has been used in college classes all across the country. Alice and I have a special appreciation for Paul's presence as a public intellectual who takes his ideas to the radio waves, college speakers forums, and the Internet. Paul is also the founder of the Campus Election Engagement Project. We're very pleased to have Paul with us for the next 50 minutes or so. Welcome, Paul, to the New Books Network. Hi, glad to be here. This is a new edition of The Impossible Will Take a Little While. It's a reader with about 50 carefully selected readings divided into nine groups, each of which has its own title. There are short readings of three to five to ten pages each, each of them written by a notable political or literary figure. Alice Walker, Pablo Neruda... Desmond Tutu, and Marion Wright Edelman are among the authors. There are some authors in this edition, Paul, who were not in the first, and others that you dropped, Jim Hightower, Kenneth Roth, among them. In these cases, uh, what went into your thinking about dropping them? Were there uh, issues with the rights uh, concerning the material, for example, uh, or no, something else? it was basically just, we didn't want, we, it was, these are really hard choices, like we, um, we didn't want a 500-page book. If we just sort of, you know, over a certain a certain length, it just got it would get unwieldy. And when I was updating the Impossible, will take a little while. I just I was adding some wonderful pieces. Um, there's this uh, great piece by Mary Piper, the psychologist, on the sort of origins of the resistance to climate change. There's a piece by Dan Savage on. Um, sort of looking at the gay marriage movement and and where things were for days, you know, 30 or 40 years ago and the progress made. It's a great Paul Hawken piece. And, you know, you add new stuff. And there's a Bill Morris piece that I always wanted to get but didn't have the rights to and was able to. And so in addition to updating the original edition where I sort of went through and it's kind of fun to, you know, I did a lot of new stuff on climate change. And so working with Tony Kushner and working with Alice Walker and, and tweaking sort of existing pieces to to kind of bring them into the present day. And there were just some points where some things had to drop because of space. So, you know, it was wasn't wasn't I decided I didn't like them or anything. It was just running out of room. Um, well, speaking of, of that, I mean, this is really uh, a departure from your other kind of solo authored pieces. What inspired you to pull together an edited? Uh, volume and and how did you generate those kind of categories? Well, what you organize everything in? Well, so so I mean, most the, the I've done five books as you may know, and Soul of a Citizen is the one that's 
gotten out the most widely. It's got about 150,000 copies out there, used in tons of courses, and still and ha- had its own updated edition a few years ago. And so, you know, it's still very much current, and you know, I travel all the time to schools that are using it in courses. Um, with the impossible, what happened? It was actually back. Uh, it was 2004 when it originally came out, and. A lot of people had been trying very difficult, very hard to stop the Iraq War before it happened, and then that just happened, and it, people felt dismal, and it, and it, and just like you know, we've tried, nothing's nothing's worked, our efforts are fruitless. I, I'm going home, and that's of course a recurrent temptation in social change work. Uh, at any given moment, to just sort of feel like there's nothing you can do, and um, you know you've tried this, you've, you've given it your best efforts, and you didn't win, and 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 so I, I was looking at the issue of burnout and just sure. resignation and despair, and I I'd already done Soul of a Citizen, I'd I'd addressed it to some degree, but Soul Soul does a lot of other things. I mean, Soul was kind of, to my view an overview of what it means to be involved in a life of social change work. And, and I, think, you know, I think it works quite well at that. Um, but it's not specifically focused except in sort of one chapter on that question of, you know, burnout and disappointment. And so I thought, well, let me do a book focusing on it. And, I, you know, to be honest, I can't remember exactly why I decided to do a, um, a book that was pulling together pieces from others rather than myself. I think what it was is that I was just, maybe I was in despair myself and I, a little bit, and I was sort of reading the books to pull me out of it, trying to get this perspective, thinking, gosh, these are such useful, powerful stories, you know, to read Nelson Mandela uh, to, on, you know, what it's like to be in the heart of apartheid, or to Desmond Tutu, to read Vlasov Havel, to read my favorite Alice Walker pieces. Uh, to read Howard Zinn, Jonathan Kozel, Marion Rice Settlement. I mean, all, all these folks were the people who sustained me. And I just thought, okay, well, I could just write my own analytic, you know, take on it, or I could pull together these stories. And, and, and I decided to do it that way. And so I literally, I went through my bookshelves. I made a huge pile on the living room floor, which my wife didn't really, you know, appreciate, but it was like, okay, this is this is temporary. I'll move it in. I'm just gonna look at these for today or the next day and then, you know, tear it down a little bit enough so that I can move it out of there and back into my office and then have a you know, some smaller pile. Um and and then you know, and then I started just basically going through and really looking at what it was that would keep people going. And it was an interesting process because I, I started, of course, as I said, with the sort of existing work that I knew. But I also I have a very large email list. So if people go to my, my website, which is theimpossible.org, they can sign up for it. And uh, it's about 20,000 people. might have been a little bit smaller than maybe 10. And I just sort of put out a broadcast call to the universe, so to speak, and said, this is what I'm doing. Are there, are there wonderful authors that inspire you or wonderful pieces that you know? And I listed who I, you know, who I'd already decided on. So you know, you know, these are already covered. Um, and people came in with lots of suggestions, and it was an interesting range because, so in some cases there were people who were on my list already to contact, like the Chilean playwright 
novelist Ariel Dorfman, um, he was. I had just had a long list of people that I was going to ask if they had anything. He was on the list, hadn't gotten any, you know, hadn't gotten to it yet. And then something comes, package comes in the mail, and says, you know, uh, here's I, here's a memoir that I thought might actually work for you. Uh, you know, best wishes, Ariel. And 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 you know, and indeed there was a lovely slice, sort of wrestling with the hopes and crashed hopes of the Allende years and the you know and the failings of Allende and what it meant to be a young man hoping and an older man holding on to hope and it was it was it just it wasn't as a beautiful piece um, and then there were some pieces that from people nobody had ever heard of there's a a woman named Danusha Gosko who teaches in New Jersey who just did this fabulous memoir of anything from her sort of you know, work with Mother Teresa in Tibet and her wrestling with a life-threatening disease. And it's just, it's a really powerful essay. Um, I mean, in fact, it, that reached a broad nerve. I mean, it's so broad that, it, in fact, it, it lost a two-to-one vote to get excerpted at, in the ARP magazine, the largest magazine in the entire country. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, they were they were they were really close. They were like you know it made the final cut and then it just missed. <laughs> um, you know, and and this is something that I you know that that, that sort of speaks to a kind of a, you know just a really broad reach. Do you hear uh, back from any any of these people after you've used their material to hear whether maybe students follow up by contacting them, and uh, mm-hmm. that leads to maybe some interesting correspondence. Between yeah. between these yeah, people, some people, no, 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 people. Some people, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times it comes. I mean, I listed the books themselves mm-hmm. after each section, but a lot of the correspondence would come to me because of the website, and they. I'm just trying to remember. It was in the last couple of weeks, um, the Goshka piece. Some country. Oh God, was it? I can't even remember what country it was. Someplace, someplace in Europe, basically wanted to translate it, and I, I and I said, you know, I know the rights available, and I said, yeah, you know, she, you know, here you have to check with her on this, but it would be fine with me, because mm-hmm. um, she controls the rights, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, and that's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we wanted to translate into Greek. That's right. Do you get um, any any people, any uh, critics of your book, maybe second guessing? Some of the people that you've used, or some of the social movements that seem to be endorsed, like I'm thinking of the Arab Spring, for for example, that a lot of people who were really quite supportive of that, um, you know, during during its uh, its uh, heyday, now would have some second thoughts about where it's gone and and not only how successful it has been or not. But even that it's had some, you know, rather uh, unbecoming outcomes. Do you do you hear from well, people? Well, you know, I haven't. I, I wrestled with it. I mean, originally when I was going to put the new edition together, the Arab Spring had just happened, and there was mm-hmm. a there was a powerful, powerful memoir from Wael Gonim, who was the Google. He was a Egyptian man who went into technology, ended up being one of the managers in their Middle East operations and launched the first Facebook, or not the first, but one of the first and the largest, Facebook site challenging the regime. And it was, hmm. it was a really powerful storm. So it was talking about, there was a man who was beaten to death by the uh, Egyptian secret police, mm-hmm. 
sort of grabbed out of an internet cafe, and it was called the We Are All Khalid Hassan, and 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 it, it, it provided a way for people to create a voice, and so you know in this, in this regime where you could be at risk of torture or jailing if you went public. And so they first spoke out on it, they talked about it. At a certain point, they asked people to put their actual names instead of just the, you know, the pseudo-identity up there, and thousands, I mean, I can't remember how much the, I mean, the site had 100, I think 150,000 people at its peak. It was really large. Uh, you know, to put, and obviously the secret police were, you know, were reading it, or the police were reading it, and, and sometimes they would address things to them. Um, and and try to do that in, you know, in the spirit of saying, this is what you should be like, not, you know, instead of, Brutalizing your fellow Egyptians, and then they they went to um, they, they they think they realized at a certain point they'd have to go public to have an impact that you can't just do everything with cyberspace, and so they it, it came up with this idea of the they called it the silent stand where they would they would line up along the Nile you know and, and in Cairo and Alexandria wearing black shirt t-shirts and just be silent. And so it would be very hard for the police to come in and just grab them because they weren't chanting, they didn't have signs, but everybody would know what it meant. And thousands and thousands of people turned out. It got some you know, international news coverage. And that was sort of the first time. And then later on, they were the ones that took um, one of his colleagues on the site that ticked the, um, it was police day in Egypt, was a national holiday that ticked it for the rally at, at um uh, Tyre Square, that that you know that sort of catalyzed the was the centerpiece of the of the you know Egyptian Spring, and they were also again very strategic about it. They kind of instead of just showing up at eleven o'clock, say where people could the police would just grab people as they came in. They did these marches through the back street, uh, where people could be the police cars vehicles were too large to go through some of these narrow streets, and they could gather momentum and, and you know and and all be there at once. So. So I, you know, I I had that all ready to go, and and indeed ended up using it. But then by time I was pulling the book together, which would be um, last summer, summer of 2013, when I was uh, working on the new edition, um, you know, the Egyptian Spring had uh, turned, you know, somewhat bitter, and uh, Morsi came in and had come in and become sort of a dictator of his own, and then he got overthrown. Uh, you know, by the military, and and you know the picture wasn't really pretty, and so I was wrestling with, does this, does this belong in a? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the question is, does it belong in a book on, on hope? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, will it be useful? I mean, it exists. The the rendition that I described is true and powerful, but is it all negated by by the subsequent events? Mm-hmm. And and I, I I was really thinking about that, and and. I kept feeling like those stories of you know partly because of the other stories in the book, um, looking so, you know Vaslav Havel talking about the resistance movement of the communist dictatorships or you know again you know Mandela or these folks on the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina, um, you know that many of those movements didn't immediately realize their fruits. It took a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact you know one of the stories that's really kind of foundational for the book is. Um, Havel talking about a petition to free some political prisoners. And he, in The Impossible Will Take a Little While, he, you know, he writes about how this is, he's writing this three years before the dictatorship falls, so he's still under, under the dictatorship, and seven years after this original petition. 
And everybody was mocking them. They were saying, this is not going to make any difference. Why even do this? And he said, well, you know, we actually did not succeed in freeing those prisoners, so you could say that it was a failure. But I don't think that's actually true, because the people who spoke out, that was the first time that they had spoken out as free human beings and that they really got a strength from that and, and courage to be able to keep, keep speaking out. And he said also that the people in jail, they recognized that, we were, that they weren't alone. The, you know, there was out there, and that gave them courage. And it's the same. I always compare it to the Mandela story, where they're they're in Robben Island prison, and they're told you're never going to leave here mm-hmm. alive. And they find ways to maintain each other's morale. So they're denied newspapers, and a hmm. guard is um, has a sandwich wrapped in a newspaper, discards the wrapper, and they <coughs> smuggle it under their shirts. You know, you know, and then in a tiny coded script, they copy the headliner story that they think will inspire there and give, give courage to their fellow inmates. So, you know, so those kinds of situations, right. you can't always, you can't always, at a given point, something may look like a failure, but in fact, um, may indeed be a success. And then what happened is I met this young that same summer, so just, you know, just near the end of wrapping up the book, The Impossible Take a Little While, I, I meet this young Egyptian woman who was studying at a school in Minnesota. And we just start talking, and she she was an entire square because she was in a, is another uh, city of 600,000, about an hour and a half north. But she went down, snuck out of her house, joined the protests. Uh, you know, I asked her, I said, well, you know, weren't you afraid? And she said, well, yeah, I mean, people had been killed by then. But I just felt like this is what we had to do, and this was our moment, and we had to, we had to grab it. And we were talking about the present situation. And she said, well, you know, we've now overthrown two dictators. If need be, we'll overthrow a third. We've learned things that we're not going to forget about our... So my generation's learned things about our own power that we're not going to forget. And to me, it was a very, it was a very powerful statement. And, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of fortuitous meeting at... When, it was Winona State in Minnesota, you know. Mm-hmm. Winona State, Minnesota. I've been there. Uh, yeah, and, and I think it may have been the sociology class that mm-hmm. you were in. I can't mm-hmm. remember, but I think it was, actually. And... You know, this fortuitous meeting, um, it sort of allowed me to be able to keep that in the book and, and, and feel like, yes, this would be, this will still serve the purpose of making people feel like there are possibilities even in difficult times instead of closing, instead of closing those possibilities off. One of the things I, I really, one of the things I really like about your book is that kind of historical depth uh, in in those characters that you use, the writers, the literary figures that you use. There are historically important stories that go along with each of those people, and I can imagine it being a great teaching tool in that way. I want to ask you about a couple of oh, the other, and, and you know, I mean, I was, I was just at I was at SUNY State University of New York at Potsdam. Oh, just a couple of weeks ago, and all their first-year students are reading *The Impossible*. Take a little while, mm-hmm. and they just were loving it. And they literally, they stood in after I gave my talk. They, some of them stood in line for an hour because the line was just that long to get their books signed. Great, I mean, you know, they were really, and they, you know, they just come up and say, "This is so wonderful. I've never read anything like that. I haven't read these stories. I didn't know these stories existed." And and they really did, uh, you know, were 
just respond, you know, in exactly the way that I'd, that I'd hoped they would. And, you know, these are just, you know, first-year students. One of my, one of my favorite um, pieces uh, is uh, Jesus and Alinsky uh, by Walter Wink. And Wink is a theologian, and you write in the introduction to that section that he turns the table on the biblical notion of turn the other cheek. And yes. I know most of uh, uh, of your uh, listeners, our listeners here, are familiar with that, but a lot might not be so familiar with Alinsky, very important historical figure. So I, I wonder if you can just briefly tell us sure. a little bit about who Saul Alinsky is and then and how, and how Wink yourself. turns that saying It's on. one of my favorites as well. So, so, so Wink, starting with Wink, Wink's a really... That, well, he died, died about a year and a half ago. Oh. Really well-respected theologian, mm-hmm. um, sort of social gospel theologian. And, and what he does is, and then I'll go to Linsky, is, is that he basically takes these, these sort of canonical New Testament parables, um, like Turn the Other Cheap, and puts them in historical context as examples of, in his argument, Jesus under basically preaching very sophisticated nonviolent resistance because as he said there had been many violent uprisings against the romans and they didn't work um i mean they just the roman military was simply too strong and so you would see and jesus wasn't the only one crucified you know you would see the crosses lining the roads of you know the latest the people who had tried courageously to get their freedom in the latest uprising and and so then, you know, so what was the choice, Wink described? He said basically the choice then, you know, if you exclude armed rebellion, was either passivity and resignation or coming up with some other way to resist. And, and so what he described, for instance, is that this was a, it was a right-hand society because you used your left hand to wipe your ass. So you, you know, so your left hand was unclean and you didn't touch people with it. So if you were... You, you could do in a sort of confrontation or whatever, you, could, you have two choices. You could strike someone with a fist or you could slap them. And to strike them with a fist would be an equal and you would slap an inferior. Um, and if somebody strikes you, if somebody turns their cheek in the way that, that the parable describes, you cannot slap them as an inferior. You have, you have to strike them with a fist just because of the angle, you know, that, 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 that it would work at. And so what he said is this is a way of, you know, the Romans come along and they're attacking you and, and, you know, they're, they're basically, they're reasserting their dominance. And this is a, this is a way of, in fact, gaining power back. So he gave another example, which is, we've all the phrase, go the extra mile. You know, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go the extra mile. Well, there was a law in occupied for for like the colonies were occupied by Rome, which Israel was one. That if a centurion asked you to carry his pack, and his packs are you know very very heavy, sixty seventy pounds, you had to. You could you know you you had to comply. There you know there had been under pain of death, but because they didn't want to sort of work people to death, which would then lead to more uprisings, they limited to carrying it for a mile. And so the Roman law, just said, you know, after that mile, he can't ask you. 
Um, and so if you are carrying it past that original mile, then you are actually reclaiming power. You're putting that centurion in violation of Roman law, and he then has to beg you to stop carrying it. Hmm. And, and so it's a very radical notion. Um, the, you know, the notion, give them your cloak, if they ask for your coat, give them your cloak. Debt, as in, as in our time, was a huge issue. And the cloak was often the only piece of garment that people had, you know, beyond the coat. And they didn't wear underwear. And so, you know, and, and, and so in a debtor's cloak to say, all right, here it is, you're forcing me to be naked, which was a, you know, the shame, but the shame then devolves on the person forcing you to be naked. So these are all these kinds of, I mean, what his argument is that it was about sophisticated nonviolent resistance. Now, Saul Linsky is sort of known as the godfather of community organizing and came out of Chicago and did these in the, in sort the 20th century. In the 20th century, exactly. <laughs> these, um, yeah, yeah, not 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 biblically or Chicago. Um, well, this is what I think and, is so wonderful about what you've done is, you know, it pulls together these ancient par- parables, and then and now you're going to put it into 20th century context with Saul Alinsky. Right. And so, so go he's ahead. The God, <laughs> so he's the godfather of community organizing, right. working in his low-income neighborhoods to empower them, and he he was a proponent of very creative, nonviolent resistance. To economic injustice um, as part of his strategies, and so I actually was the one who came. I can't remember what Wink entitled it originally, but Wink was talking about in the piece about the parallels between Jesus's approach and Saul Linsky's classical community organizing approach, and was you know, talking very, very explicitly about it. And so I said, well, well, we should title it Jesus and Linsky. He has another title, and he said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Um, and so, I mean, it's an interesting piece because I, there's a number of my friends who it's absolutely their favorite piece mm-hmm. because it's one of those things that sort of takes things that you think you know are true and inverts them mm-hmm. by adding this historical context. I mean, I could imagine what Wink said people... is that even the translation, like the King James Bible, it really was the King James Bible, and that is it was a translation, you know, from, I guess, Aramaic, I guess, um, that that was favorable to, you know, if you had a choice of words, towards subservience towards authority as opposed to resistance to authority. So, you know, I think, I think uh, it was a real interesting parable. And, and, sure. and again, what, people love it. I could imagine it people using it, using it in the classroom mm-hmm. and, and having students go to dig out some of that deeper historical context for these things and turn it into a real learning and research research experience for the students. Yeah, and it's good, too, because it also, I mean, like, you know, both the Christian and non-Christian or secular students in the class, you know, it, it challenges their worldviews. Sure. But, like, for the Christian students, it doesn't challenge it in any disrespectful way. Right. Um, I mean, Wink himself, you know, he's a Christian theologian, but it just says, oh, you might want to know this. This is another take on it. Mm. Um, another and, uh, another theologian that you use, or you refer to as uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Sure. And um, Niebuhr coined what is known as the serenity prayer. And um, I'm wondering if you could give us, if not the, the prayer itself, a a, a version of it, a paraphrased version of the prayer, and then tell us um, 
what some of your uh, quibbles with the prayer are. Oh, what, well, see, yeah, uh, what, do you, what is discussable about he, the serenity prayer? Well, so, so I think actually I do that in Soul of a Citizen, not the impossible. It will take a little while. Um, and it struck me, this is the prayer that says, uh, you know, I, I may be mangling it slightly, Lord, let me change the things that I can change and accept the things that I cannot change. And Niebuhr, you know, to, to understand, is somebody who is very, he's not a naive sentimentalist. I mean, he was you know, very involved in the relationship between social justice and Christian faith, wrestling as a point, as a one-time pacifist, with how to respond to the rise of Hitler, which eventually then said, you know, you have to do that with military force. Um, some of his writings were initially used to justify the the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and then he came out against the war. Uh, I mean, so he's somebody who's, who's 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 very much preaching a theology of engagement, um, you know, whether one agrees or doesn't agree with any particular stand. And he he ascribed it. So so he coined this 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 sort of prayer, and I think it's it's it proliferated really widely. And sure. I think what happens a lot of times, so, so most people have heard that phrase, and so certainly an awful lot of them have. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think what he's doing is he's, his intention is to say there's things that you just can't control. You know, you've got to let go of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's useful. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're in a situation where you're in a campaign and it doesn't go the way you want or an election or something like that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just, you've done what you can do, and then you need to keep doing more, but some of the factors are just going to be out of your control, and you've got to approach them as strategically as possible, but sometimes you don't control them. What I think our culture does is, is because we are such a radically individual culture, is we flip it around, and we flip it as a mandate for silence. Mm-hmm. And so we say, this is about saying, look, you know, you can't really do anything about climate right. change. A kind of fatalism. A kind of fatalism. You can't do anything about radical inequality. You can't do anything about assaults on democracy by moneyed interests. So, you know, change the things you can change. Maybe I'll, I don't know, go down, which is a good thing in itself, you know, and serve food at the local food bank, but I can't tackle those other issues. They're just too big. And I don't honestly think that that's what what Niebuhr meant, but I do think that that's the way it often gets used. Mm -hmm. So I... I go into that uh, the soul of a citizen because it's looking at systematically what leads to again to, to be leading a life of social change. That question of where the sort of psychological underpinning, spiritual underpinning, whatever, however one to phrase it, um, comes into play. And so one of the things that I do because I think it comes it fits the territory is to sort of look at the sort of self-help ethos in American culture and the way that it's debilitating to social change movements uh, and to social change participation by the inversion of that, um, you know, things like that, of that, of that serenity prayer. So, Paul, you have written a number of books at this point, and I'm sure you've given hundreds, if not thousands, of presentations, and you have many projects under your belt. You really have a kind of plethora of experience in the world of social change. I'm wondering if you had at this point to say uh, the ability to choose uh, or create a tool 
that you think would be most effective? You know, the thing that people really would need to crystallize their ability to uh, involve themselves uh, and engage the world in social change efforts. Is there something that um, that you would point to, a direction that you would lean toward? That you mean your set of assumptions, or more like context? you know, is there a you know a particular um, oh technology or form like a non a nonprofit group, or is there some you know innovation that we need? Like you know, do we need a kind of global vote counting system? Do we need you know something that takes climate change head on and brings it and translates it for each individual person on the planet? You know, is there something out there? Along those lines, that if you really had unlimited resources, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's the the magic bullet. I think people are always looking for it. Um, I know, like, for instance, in my my I run this project to get students engaged in the elections. This is a national nonpartisan project, and we worked in about twenty states in the the most recent year, and and you know, really had an impact. But do we have the magic technology? No, the magic technology are human conversations, you know, human interactions, reaching out, asking people to do things that, that should be done, in this case, having getting schools using their institutional resources to get students engaged in the election, you know, in a nonpartisan way. Um, and, and so it's about... It's, it's really, I mean, this goes back to Alinsky in some ways. It's, it's class, I would say that what's missing is classic organizing, from our culture is kind of classic organizing, where you're actually bringing in people, so you're getting them out from behind the screens and the TVs and the, you know, our Twitter feeds and Internet and all the stuff that just comes in, and, you're, you know, you're using these tools. But you're at, at some point or another, you're having conversations to engage with actual people, because I think that's what's missing. And it's interesting, like when I've gone, tried to get funding for our project, which you know, to some extent succeeded and is enough to make it fly. Uh, I happen to live in Seattle, and there are all these sort of Microsoft techies who you know, made a lot of money and, and are at least ostensibly interested in public life. And so many of them are looking for the magic app the magic technology that was just going to solve everything. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, your project's terrific, but, but we really want the app that just, you know, we'll do this, and then all this stuff will happen. And I, I have to say to them, um, you know, I just, you know, certainly coming up with good apps that can help people use the technologies they have is a useful thing. But fundamentally, you're going to have to get people communicating with each other, talking with each other, talking across political lines, talking across red-blue lines, um, engaging as human beings, and I don't think that there is an app for that. You know, so 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 I think that partly is our our instinct of our culture to try and find that, but I don't think there really is one. I, I think you you know if you skip that hard that hard work, then 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 it's built on sand. I am again. It's not to say that you can't do amazing. You know, I mean, you know, there can be a you know corporate campaign that somebody launches a petition about a company, particularly one with a retail profile, um, you know, which makes them more vulnerable, doing some kind of you know, uh, really morally questionable action, and then a million people sign on within you know, a week, and suddenly the company decides it's not worth the 
it's not worth the potential cost, and they change their behavior. So certainly things can be done with the technologies, and I'm not, I'm in no means suggesting that we discard them. But I also do think that that there is, I, I call it the seduction of clicking. There's in Soul of a Citizen, there's a trap that people can get caught in. You know, uh, it actually makes me think of. I always wrestle with this idea when. Um, I read authors that whose work I really appreciate, um, wondering what happens when uh, that author is no longer here. Like, how do we create a hundred Paul Loeb's to replace your own work once your own work is done? And you know, as you were talking, I began to imagine, you know, a summer a summer camp where people go and. Uh, you know, the, and you are, if you are in charge of that summer camp, it sounds like, you know, you remove much of the technology, you emphasize conversation, you get people involved in uh, collective organizing and some of the social change skills that have seemed to have been lost along right. the way. Yeah. Uh, and, and you I, don't, and you don't disdain that you don't disdain the technologies, you integrate them in, but you, you, you remind people that there's something else out there and that it, that it can't all be solved through them. Yeah. Well, it's like Highlander School that's still going, that, that trained Rosa Parks. I, I talk about that in an essay in, in The Impossible and Soul Both, where you know we think Parks came out of nowhere. And um, she'd been active at the NAACP for a dozen years and, and, and done trainings where she'd meet earlier generations of activists with Highlander School in Tennessee that's still going. So I, you know, I do think that that stuff is extremely valuable, where you have the chance to kind of reflect well, I know you're working on this um, campus engagement project, and, and it makes me think as well. I, you must have spoken at, you know, again, hundreds of campuses and engaged yeah. with with thousands of students in your time. Had, have you ever been tempted to uh, take on a teaching position or jump into academia yourself? Do you find an appeal there, or do you find uh, uh, too many flaws for you to kind of join the institution? Well, you know, of it's academia? a complex. It's a complex beast. I mean, I've. You know, at certain points, people have said, "We know, can you, you know, if you want to come teach at my school for a semester, I'll, you know, these would be like presidents of schools, you know, I'll find a budget line to let you do it. And I sort of thought about it, but um, I guess there's a freedom. I mean, I get to work with a whole lot of schools. I mean, our election project, uh, I mean, we were working, well, you know, it sort of depends on the definition of working, but if you say the broadest reach of our materials, Five, six hundred schools. It's hmm. a very significant influence. So, you know, it would be harder to do that if I were just at a single campus. Sure. Um, so, and you know, and, and to me, it's higher ed. It's a a institution that has a huge reach and impact, and to me, has so much unrealized potential because it is really a place where students, in a very pivotal moment in their life, can reflect and become engaged. I mean, it's interesting. There's one of the young the people who worked with our project. This year, I was uh, in 2013, we worked in Virginia because they wanted to work for a first time in non-off-year elections. Uh, I'm sorry, in a non-presidential year. And one of the schools we worked with was James Madison University. And there was a social work class. We were, we were doing these sort of nonpartisan stipended interns to lead nonpartisan engagement teams on the campuses to help students register, distribute these nonpartisan issue guides that we created, uh, to, you know, to see where the candidates stood, set up the go-get-out-the-vote operations, arrange shuttles to the polls. There's a whole lot you can do without 
being advocating for one candidate or another, you know, which is not in any way demean the importance of advocating for a candidate. It's just to say that the role of the school can't be that because they have to be able to serve everybody. And so there was a senior social work class um, that had a service learning requirement, and they it was they sort of set it up as a menu of options. So you could work. I, I can't remember what it was that they. The Boys and Girls Club, say, or work with a local food banker, the sort of standard kinds of things. That one of the options they offered was uh, to work with and help run the campus's nonpartisan engagement team for the election. And four of the students volunteered. None of them had really been politically involved before. And this one young man named Isaac um, really, really bloomed and just did a great job. And in 2014, we were continuing on in Virginia and put him in charge with it, in charge of the state. And he just did a spectacular job. He's got six schools where they, they're basically either social work or poli-sci. Uh, those classes are, are essentially replicating the process that brought him in. So as part of the class, there was a requirement to volunteer with the school's nonpartisan engagement team. And... Um, and and the, the sort of upper stu- upper level students are leading it, and the lower level students are sort of participating as the volunteers, and this all bloomed out of the sort of experience of this one young man, and he you know I I'm convinced that he's gonna he wants to make a career as an organizer, and I'm convinced that he's got the gifts because he's really 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 good, and uh, so you have to feel great about that, and 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 to me that's an example of like the power of uh, you know, schools to sort of transform folks' lives. Well, I think that's a great uh, note to wrap up with, Paul. I, uh, we both appreciate your time uh, with the interview. And um, any last thoughts for um, the listeners? No, um, if they want to check out the books, um, probably the easiest website to spell is just theimpossible.org. Uh, spelled just like it sounds, and both the impossible and soul of a citizen. You know, there's links, there's uh, stud- academic study questions. You can get exam copies if you teach. Um, I mean, all, all that kind of stuff is sort of up there to facilitate people's uses of the books. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I mean, having put a lot of work into them and having gotten just an awful lot of powerful responses, uh, I, you know, to me, I think they're they're useful work. Hope folks will check them out. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Paul. All righty. Take care.